Welcome to the October 15th, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we will review a study that utilized whole genome sequencing to define the mutational spectrum and clonal architecture of myelodysplastic myeloproliferative neoplasms. Learn more about the association between plasma levels of growth differentiation factor 15 and the risk of venous thromboembolism, and examine the role of microenvironment myeloid cells in supporting the growth of T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Our first study is entitled Molecular Landscape and Clonal Architecture of Adult Myelodysplastic Myeloproliferative Neoplasms by Laura Palomo from the Autonomous University of Barcelona in Spain, Torsten Haferlach from the Munich Leukemia Laboratory in Germany, and their colleagues. Myelodysplastic Myeloproliferative Neoplasms, or MDS-MPNs, are uncommon clonal hematopoietic malignancies with overlapping features of both MDS and MPNs. The 2017 World Health Organization classification of adult MDS-MPN includes chronic myelomonocytic leukemia, or CMML, atypical chronic myeloid leukemia, or ACML, MDS-MPN with ring sideroblasts and thrombocytosis, or MDS-MPN-RST, and MDS-MPN unclassifiable. While more than 90% of MDS-MPNs harbor somatic mutations in myeloid-related genes, current diagnostic criteria do not include molecular data. In this study, the authors performed genome-wide sequencing to characterize the mutational landscape of a large and clinically well-characterized cohort of 367 MDS-MPN patients, comprising the aforementioned subtypes. The authors found that a total of 30 genes were recurrently mutated in greater than or equal to 3% of the cohort, and the distribution of recurrently mutated genes and the clonal architecture differed among MDS-MPN subtypes. For example, CMML showed a high frequency of mutations in TET2 in 73% of subjects, while ACML was characterized by ASXL1 mutations in 92% and SF3B1 mutations were identified in 97% of MDS-MPN-RST patients. Specific gene combinations were associated with distinct MDS-MPN subtypes. These included TET2, SRSF2, or KRAS in CMML, ASXL1 and SETBP1 in ACML, and SF3B1 and JAK2 in MDS-MPN-RST. MDS-MPN unclassifiable were the most heterogeneous group, but were enriched for mutations in TP53 and U2AF1. MDS-MPN unclassifiable patients were further subclassified according to the gene combination signatures of the other subgroups. Based on the molecular profile of the major clone, these patients were categorized as CMML-like, ACML-like, and MDS-MPN-RST-like. Patients were also categorized as TP53 based on the presence of mono or biallelic TP53 mutations and other when no distinctive gene signatures were present but were enriched for either U2AF1, JAK2, or ASXL1 mutations. CMML-like cases had higher monocyte counts. ACML-like cases had higher white blood cell counts. 
and MDS-MPN-RST-like patients had a higher percentage of ring sideroblasts. In contrast, TP53 patients had more anemia and a higher bone marrow blast percentage. In their survival analysis, the gene with the strongest prognostic impact was ASXL1, which was consistently associated with an unfavorable outcome across the MDS-MPN subtypes. In CMML, mutations in ASXL1 and RUNX1, which are both included in the molecular CMML-specific prognostic scoring system, were associated with decreased overall survival. Molecular subtypes of MDS-MPN unclassifiable displayed hematological parameters and clinical outcomes, which mimicked the outcome of the corresponding MDS-MPN, with TP53 patients having the most unfavorable prognosis. The authors hypothesized that these cases might actually be CMML, ACML, or MDS-MPN-RST that probably did not fulfill World Health Organization diagnostic criteria. In an accompanying commentary, Eric Padrone from the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida, points out the historical challenges facing these patients, including the difficulty in subtyping MDS-MPNs and the large number of patients who fall into the unclassifiable variant. These patients face unclear therapeutic options and are often left ineligible for clinical trials, which are designed for specific diseases. However, these genomic signatures should help reclassify pathologically ambiguous cases into known disease entities with more refined prognoses. This information is relevant for clinical decision-making, including new targeted treatment options and inclusion in future clinical trials. Our next topic is a study entitled, Plasma Levels of Growth Differentiation Factor 15 Are Associated with Future Risk of Venous Thromboembolism by Ellen Sophie Hansen and Vanya Morelli from the Arctic University of Norway in Tromsø and their colleagues. Venous thromboembolism, or VTE, affects 1 to 2 per 1,000 individuals each year. It is associated with serious short and long-term complications, including post-thrombotic syndrome, recurrent VTE, and death. The major risk factors for VTE, such as advancing age, obesity, and the incidence of cancer, are increasing, making it likely that the incidence of VTE will continue to rise. Growth differentiation factor 15, or GDF15, also known as macrophage inhibitory cytokine, is a member of the transforming growth factor beta superfamily. GDF15 is a marker of oxidative stress, inflammation, and tissue remodeling, and is a biomarker for risk of future arterial cardiovascular disease and for thromboembolic and bleeding risk following anticoagulant treatment in patients with atrial fibrillation. Previous studies have shown increased plasma levels of GDF15 predict adverse outcome following pulmonary embolism. The Framingham Heart Study showed higher levels of GDF15 were associated with increased risk of future VTE. However, there is little other data on this potential association, and the mechanisms involved are unknown. An outstanding question is whether GDF15 is simply a risk marker of VTE, or if it is causally related. If causal, genetic variants that regulate GDF15 levels would be expected to be associated with VTE. Clarification of these questions is worth pursuing from both mechanistic and clinical viewpoints, since GDF-15 could emerge as a potential new target for VTE prevention. 
Hansen and colleagues investigated the association between plasma levels of GDF15 and future risk of VTE and adjusted for high-sensitive C-reactive protein, a sensitive and reliable downstream marker of inflammation. Additionally, they explored the potential association between GDF15 and VTE from a causal perspective, using a technique called Mendelian randomization to examine whether genetically predicted levels of GDF15 were associated with VTE. Mendelian randomization is suitable for causal inference in observational studies. It utilizes genetic variants that are associated with modifiable exposures to assess for a causal relationship between exposures and disease. The authors conducted a population-based nested case control study comprising 416 VTE patients and 848 age and sex-matched controls. Logistic regression was used to calculate odds ratios for VTE across GDF15 quartiles. For the Mendelian randomization, data from the International Network on Venous Thrombosis, or INVENT, consortium was used to examine whether single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, associated with GDF15 levels with genome-wide significance were related to VTE. The odds ratios for VTE increased across GDF15 quartiles. Subjects with GDF15 values in the highest quartile had an odds ratio for VTE of 2.05, compared with those with GDF15 in the lowest quartile in the age and sex-adjusted model. Odds ratios remained essentially the same after further adjustment for body mass index, smoking, hormone therapy, physical activity, and C-reactive protein. Similar results were obtained for provoked and unprovoked events, deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. GDF-15 levels, as predicted by the SNPs, were not associated with VTE in the Mendelian randomization, indicating that although GDF-15 levels are associated with increased risk of VTE, this association does not appear to be causal. The strengths of the study include the nested case control design, where age and sex-matched case controls were selected from the same source population. Additionally, certain assumptions could be made on the temporal sequence between exposure and outcome due to the prospective study design. Potential limitations to the study include the lengthy storage of the blood samples that could affect the plasma levels of GDF-15. However, such storage effects should be similar in both VTE cases and controls. Chronic kidney disease is associated with increased GDF-15 levels and VTE, and therefore may have had confounding effects on the analysis. Unfortunately, information on estimated glomerular filtration rate and albuminuria was available only in a limited number of participants and therefore could not be evaluated in the regression analyses. Also, because this was a single-center population-based cohort consisting of repeated health surveys of inhabitants in Norway, there was very limited ethnic diversity, so caution is warranted when extrapolating the findings to other ethnicities. In summary, the study results indicate that high plasma GDF-15 levels are associated with increased risk of VTE, and the Mendelian randomization analysis suggests that GDF-15 is not causally related to VTE. GDF-15 could be a useful biomarker to improve risk stratification for VTE in the clinic, guiding decision-making on VTE prevention, and could potentially be used together with other relevant biomarkers using a multi-marker approach. Our final topic today is a manuscript entitled 
Tumor-associated myeloid cells provide critical support for TALL by Aram Liu, Todd Triplett, and Lauren Ehrlich from the University of Texas at Austin and their colleagues. Despite harboring mutations in oncogenes and tumor suppressors that promote cancer growth, T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or TALL cells, require exogenous cells or signals to survive in culture. The authors previously reported that myeloid cells, particularly dendritic cells, or DCs, from the thymic tumor microenvironment support survival and proliferation of primary mouse TALL cells in vitro. However, tumor-associated myeloid cells from DC-deficient mice support TALL survival in vitro, suggesting a role for other myeloid subsets. The current study sought to determine whether myeloid cells are necessary for TALL growth in vivo, and if so, to identify relevant myeloid subsets and signals. To identify myeloid cells which likely support TALL, investigators evaluated the composition of enriched myeloid cells used in co-culture assays and found that macrophages were the most abundant cell type. Notably, DCs were dispensable for TALL progression in vivo. They subsequently showed that in vivo depletion of myeloid cells resulted in a significant reduction in leukemia burden in multiple organs in two distinct mouse models of TALL, and also prolonged survival. The impact of the myeloid compartment of TALL growth was not dependent on suppression of anti-tumor T-cell responses. Rather, myeloid cells provide signals that directly support TALL cells. Transcriptional Profiling Functional assays and acute in vivo myeloid depletion experiments identified activation of insulin like growth factor 1 receptor, or IGF 1R, as a critical component of myeloid mediated TALL growth and survival. Interestingly, while IGF 1R was activated in TALL cells, this was not the case in normal T cells from the same leukemic spleens. Consistent with mouse models, myeloid cells derived from human peripheral blood monocytes activate IGF-1R and directly support survival of primary patient TALL cells in vitro. Furthermore, evaluation of published transcriptional datasets from pediatric patient samples revealed that an elevated macrophage gene signature correlated with reduced event-free survival rates, with a similar trend observed for elevated monocyte signatures. In contrast, Gene signatures of non-myeloid populations, such as B-cells and natural killer cells, did not correlate with patient outcomes. In addition, the association between macrophage signatures and patient outcomes was not confounded by genetic TALL subtypes. Collectively, these data reveal that tumor-associated myeloid cells provide signals critical for TALL growth in multiple organs in vivo and implicate tumor-associated myeloid cells and associated signals as potential therapeutic targets. In the accompanying commentary, Diana Passaro from the Cochin Institute in Paris cites that the direct support function exerted by myeloid cells on TALL is not specific for one myeloid subset or one specific tissue, but it is rather a highly redundant feature. In addition, myeloid cells are likely to be a common feature of the microenvironment in different tissues and thus represents an essential component of the TALL niche. Further studies allowing deep molecular characterization and tissue-specific depletion of TALL-associated myeloid cells would be required to confirm this hypothesis. Finally, Pissarro notes, the author's work opens a new chapter for investigation of the TALL immune niche, paving the way for mechanistic and clinical studies 
To further decipher the intimate relationship between TALL and the myeloid microenvironment, which could then be exploited for therapeutic benefit. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.